Hello, listeners. Today we'll be discussing how to play the world's most dangerous game, telling a runner not to run. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Paul and Dan here, and we are joined today by our favorite Scottsdale therapist, Kaylee Roscoe. Kaylee, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course. No offense to any other Scottsdale No offense to any other Scottsdale. They don't listen to us. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Anyway, or just up Or your wife. Yeah. Just they need to. She doesn't listen to me. Are you kidding? It's not a problem. So, anywho... Today, we're going to talk about the wonderful world of shin splints. We'll get into the intro of the whole runners not running, which we've already discussed. We're not big fans of telling runners not to run. But anyway, the important component today, good old shin splints. So Kaylee, I just want to give the listeners a nice little reminder of what exactly is medial tibial stress syndrome that people already probably forgot that's the term (laughs) that shin splints is representing. Yeah. So that is the term. We often call it shin splints. It's a traction periostitis or an ear inflammation of the periosteum, often due to inflammation at the soleus, FDL, and the posterior tibialis. I love it. So now that we've recapped some of the you know, school and textbook type components, let's dive a little bit into what the research says are factors that might predispose an individual to dealing with shin splints. What all have you seen out there? Some of those things that are big factors like, oh, yep, these are biomechanical issues that we know increases your risk of developing chin splints. So when we're looking at the literature, some of the big predisposing factors are recent increase into activity or just beginning, you know, a running program, Prolonged pronation or excessive pronation in stance phase, which we'll get into a little bit more and might not mean that they're purely hypermobile. Decreased cadence and increased BMI are all main factors with that. You know, some other things would be um, decreased calcaneal eversion, sorry, inversion, excuse me, excessive calcaneal eversion, which in the second phase of gait or the push-off phase of gait means they may lack resupination, poor choice in shoe footwear, excessive training, meaning they've trained at too high of a volume for too long. I know that's not necessarily a biomechanical factor, but when you figure in all the things that Kaylee just mentioned on top of tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of mileage, over and over and over and over and over again, now those biomechanical factors where they have a slight reduction in any of those things or a slight increase in BMI or something like that, now that stress becomes excessive through their their system and leads to breakdown. I like it. And this is always one of the tough areas, as it always is in research. There's so many different thoughts. You all have put together a lot of things that are potentially there. I've also seen research suggest, suggesting increased hip external rotation is a factor, increased uh, ankle plantar flexion is a factor. I saw some that says decreased dorsiflexion is. I've seen others that say decreased dorsiflexion is not. Always tough, right? So I, the nice thing is that, Dan, you kind of alluded to it. A lot of these do end up kind of coming together and making some sense, which we'll hopefully get to for the listeners. But let's start with the good old navicular drop, since that's the typical one, that pronation. Haley, you kind of mentioned already, too, like 
biomechanically having that navicular drop doesn't always mean the midfoot is particularly hypermobile. I think that's an issue that a lot of people think, oh yeah, pronation means hypermobile midfoot. What are you talking about when you bring this up? So when we're talking about a pronated foot, a lot of times you'll look at the rear foot first, first, right? It's in excessive eversion. And if that happens, then the midfoot's not really able to resupinate at all. And so it looks like it's hypermobile, but a lot of times what can actually happen is that it's really, really stiff and stuck in that position. And that's leading to stress elsewhere. So uh, the way I think about that is... When we, when we think about mid-tarsal joints and we think navicular, three cuneiforms, and cuboid, because of the rear foot positioning like Kaylee mentioned, you're going to see a really rapid pronation moment occur, but it's due to the navicular moving, not the entire midfoot following a cascading sequence, one of Paul's favorite terms. So analyzing is the midfoot fully collapsing or is it just the navicular that's fully collapsing is something from a biomechanical standpoint we have to become better at analyzing and determining shout out to institute of physical art for talking about the compensated you know supinated foot where that's probably what is occurring here where four of the five bones are not moving and the medial most bone of the navicular is excessively moving and, you know, just to kind of put everything together, Kaylee obviously mentioned the muscles before, and of course, having some type of pronated issue across the foot puts stress on the good old post-tib, which then could lead to that stress reaction happening at the bone for us. So important to be addressing these factors and these components, which also gets into some of the shoeware, which we'll get into in a minute for you, Dan. Kaylee, one thing you brought up here was that being female <laughs> is a potential risk factor for this. Is there anything you do differently or concerned with with some of your female runners to look at this issue? Absolutely. And I don't know if it's something I would do specifically different, but things to maybe think about a little bit more is asking your female athletes about their training program, about their nutrition intake. You know, I would say most women probably don't get enough protein in, which is probably a whole other topic. But a lot of those things can lead to increased issues specifically with, you know, bony resorption and increased risk of stress fracture or medial tibial stress syndrome. I like it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the dorsiflexion plantar flexion component because that was one of those ones in research that said that increased plantar flexion is a definite known risk factor for shin splints. And then decreased ankle dorsiflexion was hit or miss depending on different things. Especially talking about running environments, Dan, you kind of had some thoughts on this. What are you thinking when it comes to, does plantar flexion play a role in this? And are you concerned with this for your athletes? So my thought there is, and I am by no means a research slash slow motion capture guru, but my hunch is that they're overanalyzing and over slowing down when they're saying that they have excessive plantar flexion up. They're hitting with their midfoot, assuming that their cadence is relatively okay, not excessively slow, although I know Kaylee did mention that, you know, slower cadence could be a cause of medial tibial stress syndrome because of too much time spent on the ground and too much ground reaction force. But if we go back to the adage, we go back to the, to the wisdom of Brett Fisher, more times than not, 
decreased dorsiflexion leads to muscle inhibition up the chain. And if we're talking about big, powerful muscles to both decel and excel movement, I'm more on the line of reduced dorsiflexion is going to be a component rather than too much plantar flexion. In runners, I don't even know the last time I truly measured plantar flexion, but I measured dorsiflexion every time. I had a runner on the table yesterday ask the question, so what's your routine before you run? (laughs) (laughs) And how many times do we all hear that? It's the same thing. So they get a little tight because they don't stretch, which that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not throwing any runners under the bus or coaches under the bus here. It's just, that's just the thing. They get out and they want to run and they use the first half to full mile to kind of loosen up. So that's my hunch is it's more of a lack of dorsiflexion, specifically closed chain, again, due to some of the biomechanical faults of their rear foot doesn't have enough motion, their midfoot has too much motion, and therefore they can't translate that tibia over their second ray efficiently enough. Which makes complete sense to me. And even some of the literature that was, honestly, they stated clearly, they're like, we're not entirely sure why this plays a role. Some of the things you're mentioning, Dan, makes sense. And one of the things they even hypothesized was if you're landing on more of the forefoot, which wouldn't typically put you into a max or excessive amount of plantar flexion, but nonetheless, if you're landing more of a forefoot run, it's going to put a lot of stress on all of the structures on the plantar aspect of our foot, plantar fasciitis is at risk, chin splints are at risk, all those things play a role. Which also then leads into what is putting force across the bottom of our foot, the ground reaction forces. So, Kaylee, you want to talk about some of the running specific things? Like Dan mentioned cadence, but what else are we looking at run specific that can put a lot of force there and lead us to potential injury risk? Yeah, so decreased cadence is a huge one. It's going to increase the amount of ground reaction force that your body's going through with each step. On average, you're getting about two to five times your body weight per step every single step that you're running. And if you're spending longer times on the ground, then that's going to be longer amounts of force and higher amounts of force that your body has to absorb. Other things that you can see are a decreased step width or a pelvic drop. All of those things are causing medial displacement of your center of mass, which is going to put a little bit more stress through that foot, probably leading to a little bit more pronation and causing change issues up the chain. When you're looking with your runners, what are your parameters for cadence, for width? What do you like to help coach them and what are some of the ranges you're looking at? I know it's specific to the runner, but what are you thinking in general? Yeah. So when we're looking at cadence, the research that I've seen shows that anything below 164 beats per minute on average has an increased correlation with risk of injury. So that's the first thing is I want to make sure that they're or above that. Then it's going to change per runner, right? I'm not expecting my 6'2 patient to run at 180 steps a minute unless they're Mofera. Most people are not going to do that. But if I have a runner who's 5'2", maybe they are able to do that. So that's where it gets a little bit more person-specific. With step width... I'm keeping it pretty general. I want to make sure that they're not crossing midline. I want to have a little bit of a gap between their knees and between their feet at stance phase. 
But I'm not getting super scientific with that because like Dan said, I think a lot of times we can overanalyze some of that motion capture data. On the analysis side, again, we kind of talked ankle foot pretty nicely, some other components across. There is some components of, I think research said, excessive hip external rotation puts you at risk. There is some disagreement, but there are certain studies that show that decreased hip internal rotation puts you at risk. Do either of you look at the hip or have concern with hip? Kaylee, I know you mentioned pelvic drop, but what are you all looking at at the hip in relation to medial tibial stress syndrome? So I definitely will look at hip internal rotation because, again, of, the, of how the femur is moving relative to the pelvis and what that's doing to, to load the glute to assist with that propulsion phase. So if they're lacking hip internal rotation, that's definitely something that I really want to look at. You know, you and I have treated a, a female runner who didn't have very much hip external rotation, but had some hip internal rotation, had quite a bit of hip internal rotation, had a baby, was in, was seeing your wife, and was starting to get back to running. And the thing that you, you know, that you and her gave this individual was working on end range hip IR training in a non functional position and all of a sudden her symptoms went away and was able to get back to running. So I think not just a motion, but also the motor control to use that motion. Dan touched on a, a really important topic there. I just want to put a quick plug in, especially for people who work with runners a lot. Please ask their hip history, hip dysplasia history, antiverted, retroverted. The runner in particular Dan's talking about she was told by many, many people she needed more ER, she needed more ER, and to stretch further into external rotation. Because of a significantly antiverted hip, she had a lot of IR and lacked ER, but stretching that would have resulted in a larger range of motion overall that, while we know more of the shoulder with the more shallow socket is a huge risk for instability, it plays a big role in the hip as well. And I've seen that time after time, and it's important for people to keep that in mind. Like, do you really need this, or is something structurally impacting you? You have to adapt to that athlete's structure. So thank you for bringing that up, Dan. Well, thank you. I love it. Good answer. So as we've talked through a lot of the literature, again, increased pronation definitely plays a significant role across the components here, looking at all the factors there, and looking up the chain for the individual. So let's talk about how we take care of this individual, what the treatment looks like. There's another one. Literature, a lot of it, don't stretch, don't strengthen. None of these things help. Everything in the literature goes towards the acute side of things and really symptom management pieces. So Kaylee, in particular, if you have someone that has an acute issue of mediotibial stress syndrome, what are you doing initially to help them? I think the first thing you have to do is calm the tissue down. So it's an acute issue. There's an acute inflammatory process going on. So yeah, some of those more passive treatments might be things that you want to do early on, not only to get some pain control and get some patient buy-in, but to allow you to move to the next step. Yeah. I mean, I'll add, I know you didn't specifically ask me the question, but <clears throat> one thing I'm really going to look at is while we're working on pain management and inflammation reduction is... I'm going to start at their intrinsics because I feel like that's one thing that wasn't really talked about as a potential cause of this was intrinsic foot strength, mainly because there's probably really no great way to measure internal intrinsic foot strength. The AMA out of Canada has a, has a decent way of doing it, um, which it, it, shout out to those guys. 
they didn't pay me to give them a shout out, but I'm going to shout them out anyway. <laughs> they, they've got some, you know, fairly high level things that I, I've utilized with a lot of individuals on, on foot intrinsic strength. And I feel that's one of those things if we talk about early treatment strategies, if we don't look at their ability to fire their foot intrinsics, we're probably going to miss something, especially if we talk about being able to control the midfoot from a excessive pronation as the leading cause, according to the literature of medial tibial stress syndrome, is we have to look at foot intrinsic strength during an, an acute phase of management. Absolutely. And with that being said, please don't just give your runners towel scrunches. That's not really a super functional, intrinsic foot exercise. Get them doming their foot. Get them being able to move their toes. Do things that are a little bit more functional in standing rather than just having them scrunch a towel. And, you know, I think that that's something that Paul and I have talked about after that course, as well as John Klein, is if we think about runners and we go back to the force that Kaylee was talking about of, of body weight impact every time their foot hits the ground and the combination of gravity, how many times per run do they need to activate and control their foot intrinsic? It's the same number of times that their foot hits the ground. So again, we go back to tangents and talking about science of exercise. When you're giving somebody three sets, of, you're giving a runner three sets of towel, 10 towel scrunches, they've, they've went 62 feet. So you have to think about the volume of which we need to have their foot intrinsics firing and the positioning and what is the load on top of them and how are they doing it and how many times are they doing that. It's hugely important because, again, another just brought up another potential missed cause, this lack of great toe extension could be a leading cause of medial tibial stress syndrome because they don't have the ability to get their great toe on the ground and push off their great toe. You both bring up really good points. It's always one of those challenges for me because I want to start challenging people. As Kaylee, you alluded to, like towel scrunches is not where I want to start with that individual. I want to get something more functional, and especially intrinsics. I love to start getting into you know, only the forefoot on a step, doing different things where you have to really maintain the intrinsics of the foot for it. Now, that's going to be too challenging at the acute phase, but what can I do that's successful for the patient in a standing position that will build us into that once the time frame gets around is always a good challenge that I'm trying to do. I also want to ask in the acute phase, the big question from the intro, because this is always the challenge, what do you tell your runners? Are you having them rest? Are you having them run? What advice do you give? Because again, telling a runner not to run is kind of like giving them a death sentence. As a runner myself, I can tell you that any time a health professional of some sort tells a runner not to run, they're probably not going to listen. You have to meet them halfway. So is it an option of saying, hey, I want you to decrease your mileage and add in some cycling or add in some swimming? That way they're still getting, you know, the amount of training volume that they're looking for to continue to train at their appropriate level without ticking it off. Or if it's something where they're having a whole lot of pain and they're not able to even decrease their mileage, then, okay, I want you to take one week off and then let's see where we're at. Let's see if we can start to slowly bring back some running. But no, I'm probably not going to tell them hard and fast to stop running because I just lost my buy-in. 
And I love what you mentioned there too. Get the cycling, get the swimming, some type of cross train. If in the event, as you said, Kaylee, you had that person that like you, I need to let this tissue rest. I need to call this explanation down. Please give a week off for their mental sanity. Therapist, please give them something else to do or they will come in feeling absolutely crazy the next time. I also want to kind of ask as well, because you both kind of joked about this before the podcast, I took a week off. Why am I not better? Do you do anything to help them understand the purpose of this week so they don't think, oh, I'll be better in a week and I can go run again my usual mileage the very next week? How are you educating that patient to understand the realistic expectations and purpose of this break time? Absolutely. Like I said, it's really my kind of last resort. I would rather just try and decrease their mileage first. We're lucky at Scottsdale here. We have an Alter G, so that might be something that I try as well to get them still running some miles, but at decreased body weight. But if I absolutely have to shut a runner down, you know, say that we're dealing with medial tibial stress syndrome, but we don't know it's specific that, or if they potentially have a stress fracture, I might want to shut them down for a week and just see, is there any change? Are they having pain outside of running with weight-bearing activities? Does that go away? Are they able to go throughout their day without pain? That's really all I'm expecting. And I'm telling the patient that, you know, you're not going to take a week off and then go back to your normal training cycle like there's no problem. It's really just a almost a diagnostic test to see how irritable is the tissue and how much can we push it? Do either of you do any taping type of components or shoe wear recommendation? Again, more the acute phase, but anything you do to help on that side of the spectrum? So yeah, I will use some kinesio tape, rock tape, whatever. Choose your favorite brand. Again, we're not getting paid for that endorsement, although maybe that would be nice at some point. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, you know, just hit, hit us up. But yeah, I will, I, I, a lot of times will try a navicular lift tape technique. So start on the base of the fifth, come around the plantar surface, hit the navicular, give a little bit of a, of a lift with my thumb, utilize the, the, the tape to assist, and then kind of follow over the anterior aspect of the Taylor cruel joint. The second tape I may do is I actually may do a compressive tape. So starting on the central portion of the gastroc and pulling medially around the tibia. Again, kind of have to play that by ear. Sometimes that little bit of compression helps them. Sometimes it makes it worse, but I am not opposed to giving them a little bit of a lift with the tape through their navicular first before I go down any rabbit hole of orthotics or anything like that or making any shoe adjustments unless they come in and their shoe is absolutely trashed which most runners are well aware of the the number of miles that they're putting on their shoes so i will start first especially in that acute inflammatory stage with some sort of kinesio tape through that navicular that makes a good point though when we talk about you know seasoned runners they know how much mileage they're putting on their shoe but this is an issue that comes in with a lot of beginning runners, with people starting new programs. And that might be something that you need to educate your patients on. You know, you really should only have three to 500 miles on your shoes at one time. And if you have someone who's getting back into running, say that, you know, they tell you they haven't put 300 miles on their shoes, but they're also 10 years old. 
that foam doesn't work anymore and they probably need a new shoe. Well, I think you hit into that component there of that runner who loves version eight of the shoe and they buy 15 pairs of version eight of that shoe. No offense, Amanda, I'm going to throw you under the bus here. But you know, at a certain point, perhaps that shoe has be, has broken down. Your foot has adapted because of things and changes that we've made in therapy. And perhaps that shoe isn't the right fit for you anymore. And, and looking to something else, that's why partnering with a great local running store, shout out Soul Sports. Man, I'm giving lots of shout outs for free today. <laughs> Soul Sports, man, I'm going to hook you up here. But finding a local running store that will work with you and work together to find the right shoe wear for the patient is crucially important. Again, based on all of the factors, do they need heel control? Do they need more arch support? Do they need more cushion because they don't know how to efficiently load? But then we're going to transition out of that, right? Like, how do we work collectively together and collaborate to help that athlete get the care that they need and deserve? I love it. And mild circle back, but you mentioned heel control. I'm a huge fan on the taping side. I do a lot of the navicular lift and the arch support. Like we said, we're trying to trying to work on intrinsics of an area that is stressed. So I want to give it some ability to have some help and have some success. Dan, you've also mentioned that this can be an issue of the athlete's inability to resupinate. If they have that everted heel and they can't get into a resupinated position, it can play a role. I've done a couple of tapings where I'll do a little bit of facilitation to help with that supination piece as well as the arch tape, just to help, again, their foot be successful early on. So some good points you kind of brought around that, that work out nicely. There is one piece of research we haven't talked about yet. Oh, boy. I know, right? And that is the fact that athletes or any individual with a history of shin splints are at a significantly increased risk of reoccurring shin splints, which kind of just seems like a... No kidding. Um, especially when you look at what the recommended treatment is, often the treatment is all acute management, inflammation management, pain management, important, but the literature doesn't do a very good job going into what are you looking at to fix the biomechanical issues, and a lot of therapists struggle with this. So once we have that person calmed down, what are you two looking into to help try to the best of ability of limiting the risk of reoccurring issues here? So I'm going to get them on a treadmill, maybe reassess their running mechanics after things have calmed down. Because that can change a whole lot. Maybe they were limping because they were having so much pain. So I'm going to get them back on the treadmill and reassess everything and see what we need to work on from a biomechanics standpoint. At the end of the day, I kind of alluded to it earlier. Like I said, there's two to five times your body weight going through your, your foot with each step. So my main goal is to improve that runner's efficiency with loading while running, make sure that their body can withstand all of that force. Runners will often say that they don't need to strength train because they're running and isn't that making me stronger? Not really. Your body's just withstanding that force rather than adapting to that force. So when we look at Google, Google will show you kind of two polar opposites. They'll show you the stretching camp. And just stretch, 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 stretch. I think we've kind of already talked about the pros and cons of that without directly hitting those exercises. And then there's the other school where it's strengthen, 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 and they don't even mention stretching. And while I don't disagree with that, I don't think that's the end-all, be-all, but I do agree with Kaylee's point on 
ensuring that they can appropriately handle load, which means when we're out of the acute, manage, acute management stage, we have to put load into their system. They have to be able to, to move weight in order to prepare themselves to return. If we've done our job in addressing those biomechanical issues in the early acute management stage and helping them come with a program to control the movement that they do have or improve the ranges that they're lacking and then control that, now we have to put that all together in the fact that they're going to go and run 3, 5, 10, 20, 100 miles and the number of steps and the amount of force that's gonna go through their system, we have to work with them and their coach, if they have a coach, on being able to handle load through all sorts of different demands. The soleus, the calf, the hamstring, the quads, the glutes, the, the hip rotators, their core, making sure that they have thoracic spine rotation so that they don't you know, put a stress on something else now. So all of those things post-acute are, are components I'm going to look at that I agree with when you Google PT search exercises to help with shin splints. And thank you for mentioning, you stated just a number of muscles we all think of, but so many times I see this, especially in school type of components for therapists who are still learning, you have a diagnosis and then you think local diagnosis, like, oh yeah, I should strengthen. So I strengthen the soleus and the post-tib and flexors and whatever else you find in the area and they forget quads they forget they forget all the other components of the equation that are essential again with the number amount of force that's going through them which is an important piece too and i'm curious how you two feel or actually feel i know how you feel how do you two educate your runner when it comes to the strength training piece because there is a lot of thought process especially the longer you're going in length for runners saying like i don't want to be too bulky i don't want to have too much to try to propel forward i want to be smaller and that's male, female, that goes across the running spectrum. And I've had a lot of runners over the years that have finally gotten into strength training and I've seen huge improvements as their muscle mass increases. But it's a pain to get them to that point. Anything you two like to do to help them see the light? I think education is the biggest thing that you can take away from this. I will explain to my patients the amount of force that goes through their body with each step. And, you know, if they're running five miles or 200 miles, I've treated both, that it's important to build the strength outside of just the, you know, trauma of running. And so I have a very frank conversation very early on with my patients that we're going to load and we're going to work on strength so that when you do go out and run, it's not as taxing to your muscles. So yeah, I agree with Kaylee on the educational component. And a lot of times I'll find a, a famous runner and I'll pull up a Google image and it will highlight the muscle definition in their legs. And I'm like, look, look at the muscle definition in their legs. Let's take a still shot of you when you're on the tre treadmill do we see the similar muscle definition? If the answer is no, not that I'm going to turn them into Mo Farah or Galen Rupp or anything like that, but I want them to see that these individuals at the highest level are utilizing strength training at various times in their training programs. Now, granted, they are professional athletes. They devote a lot more time than the vast majority of individuals that we see due to this. 
but it's still an important component. The other thing I, I will talk to them about, about the importance of strength training is I'm going to go back to the intrinsics and helping them fire their intrinsics barefoot and then fire their intrinsics in their running shoe. I will educate them on their running shoe is their running shoe. It is not also their everyday shoe. Otherwise, it's going to break down faster because of, you know, walking and, and you're still getting forces through that foam, as Kaylee alluded to, regardless of what the technology is. So I will have them bring their running shoe in to strength train in so that they learn to sense the ground in their shoe while they're strength training, while they're doing their program, while they're working with the metronome for their cadence, while they're running on the treadmill and having a gait analysis, right? Like I want them in their shoe doing some of their strength training program in the clinic with me so that they get used to finding their intrinsics. I love it. Well, thank you both. A lot of really good info today, building on biomechanics, looking at the foot type that plays a role, all the way up to the training of the shoe wear. A lot of good tidbits to kind of help people be successful with their runners with medial tibial stress syndrome and a lot of other things as well, obviously. So again, thanks to you both for the great information. For the listeners out there, if you have any questions or thoughts about the topic or topics you'd like to hear, please reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 